As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show. Hey you, what's that sound? It's listener questions for another round. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to help answer your questions that you've submitted is a man who loves Man United, but hopefully that doesn't mean he'll capitulate in the second half of this show. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello. I'm I was really struggling to figure which song you were parodying. And is it is it what is it just what's that sound? Is that what you've gone with, Ryan? Hey you, what's that sound? There Everybody is. look what's going down. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, that's a good way to begin. I always appreciate that. Always good to be here, Ryan. <laughs> anyway, I'm a big United fan at the moment, Taylor. Let's turn the attention away from my uh, singing to you. Uh, you know, United on Tuesday drawing with uh, the team at the bottom of the league. Um, Ralph Ranick putting putting some uh, putting some ill words on Ronaldo, saying today it require a lot of sprinting, chasing balls, a lot of fight for second balls. This best fits the profile for Edinson Cavani, which is why he starts today. Woo, Taylor. Woo. Yeah, let's keep talking about music instead, shall we? So I don't have to talk about Manchester United and how frustrating they are. Yeah, it's it's not great times. It's not my favorite. Felt like things were going well, and then felt like things were not going well in the second half of that game. I still feel like it's Ralph Rangnick trying to turn things around and trying to figure out how best to make this team function so that someone else can take over. But I also have to believe that that was not the goal at the beginning of the season. And I have to believe that that was also maybe the hope was that he would turn them around fairly quickly and get things going. That does not seem to be the case. And I, a person who long thought Ralph Rangnick would be the one to make a difference, sort of uncertain about how things are going at Man United. Um, If it's any consolation, Taylor, I'm finding it very funny. Oh, that's good. That's good. Excellent. Also, and I think it's great how good MK Dons are doing this season. <sighs> a minute in. Also, here is the podcast equivalent of a Kieran Trippier free kick, Galazzo, Arizona, Joe Lowry. No MK Dons mentions, please, Joe. Okay, I got you, Ryan. I will just mention uh, you seem very pleased about this whole Man United catastrophe, and I agree it is pretty darn entertaining. But I can say that as someone who placed exactly zero dollars on their title chances, um, I don't know that you can say that. But either <laughs> oh my way, gosh. I respect you taking a backseat and just letting the the narrative really carry us all here. Shots flying all over the place on this episode so far. Goodness me! Yes, I sometimes do bad bets. Jeff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> oh, I also just I can't get over Taylor. I think you said like all right after Ryan sang his song. I I don't know. <laughs> Listeners just heard it like twelve seconds ago. I already forgot, but that was so funny. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, speaking of so funny, let's complete our roundup with a man who can't wait to visit the redeveloped Spotify Camp New. Is that right, Graham Ruffin? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Barcelona, they, they needed some more bad PR, uh, I guess. And so a deal with Spotify, given everything that's happening with that company at the moment, same, it seems apt. And by the way, Joe, I just have to mention, I've never been prouder, buddy. Like that was just magnificent. I feel oh, like Graham. I'm teaching you the, the ways. So <laughs> yeah. congratulations. Well done. Joe, Thank you so mad. much. I love I'm it. I'm not even mad. Um, uh, this was with uh, the Camp Nou Graham, the club, the uh, Barcelona are expecting to announce a 280 million euro deal with Spotify for the title rights for the redeveloped stadium and also for shirt sponsorship. That's nearly three Joe Rogan's worth of money there. That's pretty good. Um, what I wonder though, if 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 um, you know Spotify want to put their name out there on a nice fancy new stadium for a team that isn't going to win anything soon, Tottenham Stadium's right there, Graham. <laughs> Harsh, harsh. I thought you were going to go down the route of uh, Spotify not pay- paying its artists and maybe that's why Barcelona have p- partnered with them. They're not going to pay any of their players and that's how they're <laughs> going to get out of this uh, out of this predicament that they're in at the moment. Um, I'm probably aware that a lot of listeners to this show use Spotify. Um, therefore, I think our position is it's wonderful and unimpeachable as a platform, Graham. Even if <laughs> I mean, that's, young, that's literally how I listen to this soon. podcast is through Spotify. <laughs> so I am definitely not uh, unimpeachable. Ah, oh boy. All right, let's move on from that intro, which was great fun for all involved. We got a question here, boys, from Matt Koss. What soccer hybrid sport would the USMNT have the best chance of winning at the respective World Cup for that hybrid sport? For example, kickball, foot golf, football, tennis, etc. Uh, Graham, I'll start the ball rolling with you. I'm ooh, to coin a phrase. I'm not going to say football tennis is the answer here because. Um, the US has lots of good female tennis players, men's. Who we got? TFO. Yeah, Taylor TFO Esner. He's Isner. been kicking around for a bit. The days yeah. of Agassi and Sampras are a bit in the past. So yeah, this this is some tennis chat, listeners. That's what's yeah. happening right now. Also, what is happening? Why did why do why do so other confused. sport players factor into this? Well, if you're gonna have a Think- hybrid sport, Taylor, of soccer with another sport, you want someone from that other sport who's good at it, presumably, right? No, I haven't ah. gone that way. I've oh. gone our national team playing another sport. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right. So well, there, Taylor, Ryan. Take the mic, Taylor. <laughs> Tell us more. I had kickball because it's, I mean, the U.S. is going to yep. be more familiar with the rules uh, of baseball and therefore kickball than many other countries. Ample opportunity for Weston McKinney to talk trash. And he is definitely the pitcher because he would try really hard to strike people out. Tyler oh, Adams, yeah. the shortstop. Walker Zimmerman, our power oh, hitter. Giassi Zarda is batting ninth, and people still getting angry that he's even being allowed to bat. <laughs> Taylor, I also have kickball. Um, but really, the only reason, you had some really good reasons, like our, our cultural understanding of baseball. And I think kickball is, is obviously very close to that. My my pretty much only reason is so that Daryl DK can hit the ball as hard as he can. Can yeah, you imagine can. some poor pitcher rolling the ball at <laughs> two miles an hour towards Daryl DK? He's going to hit that thing so hard. So hard. I've picked kickball. Daryl DK is my captain. He is pretty much the only hitter I need on this team. I back the U.S. to win every game. I I also picked kickball. Um, it seems like we've got a theme going here because of the reasons of baseball and um, you know a unique advantage for the U.S. There is kickball something uh, American 
co-hosts that you played on the playground from a young age as well would you would it be like embedded in you the skills of that particular discipline as well I did. Yeah, I, I played not a lot of kickball growing up, but but certainly plenty of kickball. The rules are are in my noggin, Ryan. Is, yeah. is kickball what they play in recess? Do you remember that that cartoon Recess that that was around for a while? Is I that, thought you I, just meant like at recess. literally recess. Yeah, you know, no, I no, I mean, yes. I meant the, the cartoon. I think I'm pretty sure they play kickball on that. I don't that, know what that is. That's my only uh, experience of kickball. It's not a it's not a game that I am familiar with at all. Why not? Why not just play like so- regular soccer? That's Grim, better. Grim, did you have recess? This is a, like a genuine question. Did you have recess as a as a child? Uh, yes, but they just <laughs> made or have you, you do only laps read about it around the school. It. Okay. Nice. <laughs> they just yes. made the children go from the school to the factory and then yeah. back, and the factory right. was recess. They had to right. go down okay. the coal mine in bare feet, Joe, but otherwise it was a recess. Right, okay, <laughs> with a cold with a cold lamb pie in their hand or whatever, yeah. Yeah, mutton pie. Yeah. No, <laughs> no brown pie. sauce. You don't get brown sauce. No, not, not to at least your high school. school. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, yeah. My, my, my actual explanation for you, I think we had a soccer field at my elementary school. It did not have nets. We did have baseball fields, but obviously they weren't going to give a bunch of elementary age kids bats and then not kind of like have all the teachers all over them because i think recess is the opportunity for the teachers to try to get rid of their headaches while 50 children run around a field so we would play soccer on the baseball field which was kickball right i mean it seems like an oversight to have built a baseball field in the first well, place that. if you're not allowed to play baseball on it it's america's pastime <laughs> that, graham yeah is that basically what happened with nycfc oh. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> Um, Taylor, uh, are you aware yeah. of the TV show Happy Endings and the kickball episode being the best episode I, thereof? I need you to know, Ryan, how close I was to what, when Joe was talking about Daryl DK just smashing it out of the park every time. I think he would, but I like the opposite of him going the Brad route and going bunt cake every single time and, and calling his bunt and always bunting. I like Daryl DK being crafty that way and then occasionally smashing it out of the park, which would be way more fun. Excellent. Um, it sounds like we've all gone kickball. Graham, where did you settle? So I went down the foot golf route because I found out that the foot golf World Cup is actually being hosted in Orlando in 2023. Of course it is. So it feels like this is the US's <laughs> chance to get really good at, at foot golf. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, soccer is basically, uh, sorry, soccer, Scotland is basically a, a golf theme park for American tourists and Donald Trump. So I wonder if combining golf with soccer might accelerate soccer's route into the into the mainstream. I don't know. I'm trying to come up with logic here. I actually fell down the rabbit hole of looking at different foot golf national teams merchandise in my research <laughs> for this. Go on. Oh, there's a surprising amount of it. <laughs> I ended up on uh, Team oh USA's uh, store and you can get branded uh, t-shirts and tees, you know, as in golf tees and markers and you can get a backyard foot golf setup for $545. Bargain. It's a bargain. Why is it so much? What is it? I don't know. There didn't seem to be all that much in it. It was just some markers and some t-shirts and some and some tees. It was bizarre. But anyway, oh, that's how they yeah, get you. 500 bucks. That's how they get you. Um, so we've got kickball, football, football, tennis. Are there any other hybrid disciplines we're missing? Is, does, is there a frisbee one or something? Whatever like? Burnley play. <laughs> that doesn't involve a ball, I don't think. <laughs> All right. That sounds like we got through that question. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, let's move on to Brian Hansen's question here. He says, Ryan, that's me, listened to three lines before every England game last summer. During USMNT World Cup qualifying, what would your pre-game song be? And also, addendum, does Graham have one for Scotland as well? Taylor, um, I'm assuming it's the Team America main theme song. 
that you will choose. Uh, that is one way to go if you want to get really, really amped up in a certain kind of way. Uh, I, I tend to go for my serious answer is there's a song called The Kiss by Trevor Jones. It's sort of the last of the Mohicans theme song. It's what my college team would walk out to, and it will forever get me amped up. So that is my serious answer. Team America is a great answer. Body of American, Body of an American by the Pogues used to be one that I would listen to before the 2010 World Cup, and that tended to get me pretty amped up, even if some of the performances in that competition did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's, there's that route. You can go like the super amped up, like Know Your Enemy by Rage Against the Machine. That was suggested in the, uh, the music league that we're in, Ryan. Somebody suggested that as a good pregame song, and I feel yeah. like that's worth mentioning here as well. So what's the criteria, Taylor? Is it like a, a run through a brick wall? Is it the, is, is, is the, uh, the song you'd expect to hear as the team came on the field? Is that what we're talking about? I think it's just anything that gets you like focused and, and ready for it. Anything that makes you like excited for the game. And I, that's why I like that first song I mentioned, because it can be this very intense level of focus. It can be like set to highlights and you're watching a bunch of goals and it's getting you ready that way. But it can be whatever you want it to be. Mostly, it just has to get you in the right mindset to then be confused and frustrated in the opening 15 minutes when things don't go right, which is how it tends to go in the World Cup for the United States. Joe Lowry, where did you settle? Have you been scrolling your Spotify account sponsored by Barcelona at any point? To uh, Oh, you know it, Ryan. You know I have been. And after all my scrolling and all my thinking, I thought long and hard about this question. I realized that the answer was right under my nose all along. Let's go back to 2006, shall we? Um, And Big Hawk and Clint Dempsey have just released a song called Don't Tread. Think soccer ain't a sport, then why Nike sign me? I mean, Clint Dempsey is just a visionary. (laughs) It is Don't Tread. This is not a serious answer. I don't think Don't Tread is actually, I I don't think it's actually a good song. I don't think Don't Tread is actually a good song. That's confusing to say. How dare you? Um, And I'm not the only one who shares that opinion, ladies and gentlemen. Adam Snavely, the great Adam Snavely, wrote for his newsletter a while back, Dead Ball Daily, what was formerly known as Dead Ball Daily, about a full analysis of this song. And I think Adam pointed out a lot of flaws in it as well. So I have some backup here. But I just think it's incredible that Clint Dempsey made a rap song. And I don't want anyone to ever forget that. R.I.P. Big Hawk. (laughs) R.I.P. So, uh, Joe, you've dropped a deuce there. I like the sound of that one. Um, I had a suggestion for the USMNT, uh, Sad But True by Metallica. You want that kind of stadium, big song, big, also they had a big American artist as well. And qualifying, often, Sad But True. Yikes. <laughs> I'll let I, that hang. Uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, Graham, what do you got for Scotland? Yeah, so there are two pre-game songs for Scotland. Uh, songs that you would hear at Hamden being belted out by 50,000 fans. In fact, if you watch the playoff game against Ukraine next month, I'm not nervous at all, I'm not nervous at all, I'm not nervous at all. You will hear those uh, songs. So one is a tune called Bits and Pieces. It's a Dutch rave track that has somehow become embedded in the Scottish psyche and particularly in the Scottish sporting psyche. They play it after goals are scored at Hamden. And I wait, in a, in a way that I, I can't quite articulate, it's quintessentially Scottish that we somehow have adopted this song as a, as a national sporting anthem. And in another pre-game song, which listeners might have caught at the Euros, is, uh, Yes Sir I Can Boogie by, uh, Bakara, which isn't a traditional pre-game anthem. It's, it's, it's a fairly recent one. It's been adopted, but in the same way that Sweet Caroline was adopted fa- by, England fans over the summer, this was our anthem over over the Euros, and it's become associated with this particular group of Scotland players. So the reason, to go into the reason why Scotland fans sing that song, the reason why it was adopted is that Andy Considine, who was in the squad when Scotland qualified for the Euros when they beat Serbia 
Uh, I don't even know when that was. That was in pandemic world. The years just mashed into together. That mm. might have been 2020 or 2019. I don't know. Um, but he had a, a stag do a few years ago and that stag do, he dressed up in a very short dress and sang this song, which was being videoed. That video was then stuck on YouTube and it was adopted by his teammates and then the fans. So those are my two picks. Graham, I thought you may go with something a little more Scottish. Um, mm-hmm. Chelsea Dagger by the Fratellis, which is used by a lot of sports teams. Does, I think Glasgow Celtic even use that, do they not, when they score? You know, do, 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 do that one. Everyone knows the tune. Um, like, how about that? So, so Celtic, I can't remember them using Chelsea Dagger. Celtic, Celtic famously for a number of years, they used uh, um, Depeche Mode. What's the Depeche Mode song called? Uh, Personal Jesus? No, <laughs> but uh, can't. What's the? Just you can't, can't stop. Enough. Just can't get enough. Sorry, that's it. Yeah, of course it's just can't get enough. Yeah, Celtic used to play just can't get enough by Depeche Mode. Yeah, that's a lot better than Personal Jesus as a post goal song. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine Personal Jesus would work well in that setting. Oh, all right, Joe. Any anything for the Republic of Arizona? I'm assuming something by Jimmy World or Gin Blossoms or something. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, Ryan, honestly, the sad thing is you're probably more of an expert on Arizona-based music than I am. I do know Jimmy Jimmy Eat World is from here. Something with some twang, something about uh, how hot it is here and how dusty it is. I think any of those categories as a general guide would work. Excellent. We'll work Virginia has an anthem, for what it's worth. Go on. It's by Clips. It's called Virginia, and uh, you should enjoy it. Pharrell, Pharrell, like an 18-year-old Pharrell doing the beat in the background. Uh, and it's all about uh, how much drugs are sold in Virginia. So there you go. That's a good one. It's for lovers, isn't it? That's what I that do. too. That too. Yes. I heard that. Um, uh, what about things uh, like... Virginia's for lovers, but trust there's hate here for out-of-towners who think that they're going to move weight here. There you go. That's one of the lyrics <laughs> from that song. Wonderful. <laughs> Available on Spotify, listener. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, about the best songs that actual teams come onto the field with. And, you know, you get things like Thunderstruck, which is a classic. And the one I thought was the best, Taylor, is I think Man City still come out to it. But it's Right Here, Right Now by Fatboy Slim, which has also been mentioned recently in our aforementioned music yes. fantasy league. And that one, it's got the, you know, it's got the, the tension build up. It's got the huge drop. That is a really good pregame song. Yeah, I think sometimes it has to be, in my mind at least, it has to be like associated with a scene in a movie and then it amplifies it. And I think that one is Willie Beeman running in Any Given Sunday is set to that one, and that will always get me amped up, picturing Willie Beeman, like, breaking tackles, Jamie Foxx's character. Like, uh, Cla- uh, Remember the Titans, not Clash of the Titans, Remember the Titans has the same thing. Uh, Days of Thunder has the same thing with Give Me Some Lovin'. Like, you've got to kind of connect it to a song to make you feel that level of emotion, and that one definitely does, for has, sure. Has, has anyone noticed that Spurs run out onto the pitch to the Phantom Menace, the Star Wars Phantom Menace? The teacher. Dueling Fates? Yeah, the one that's like, do, 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 yeah. do, 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 which I always find quite entertaining. They should come out to the cantina music. That'd be more fun. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a comedy team should do that. Like a team that doesn't take itself too seriously. Norwich. Yeah. Once they get that sweet Spotify sponsorship, though, Graham, then they'll be getting all the tunes out before games. Um, (laughs) Brian, thank you very much uh, for that question. When we come back after the break, another question from a different Brian. Exciting! Stay tuned. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listener Questions. Here's Brian Avery with a question who says, Advocates for promotion relegation always speak about the benefits of having promotion, but rarely mention the relegation side of things. What are the benefits to having relegation as part of the soccer ecosystem? Um, Graham, I suppose to kick it off, a big benefit is the relegation by its very nature opens up a spot for a new team to come up. Yeah, that, this is a this is a tricky one because I, I guess if you take relegation and isolation on its own, there aren't really any benefits. In fact, relegation can be really painful for a club beyond soccer reasons. So in Scotland, for example, clubs that get relegated, especially if they're quite sizable clubs, so in recent years, Hibs and Hearts have been have been relegated and Dundee. It's expected that non-soccer staff will be made redundant, so they lose their jobs. And there's, there is a real-world impact to relegation that can make you question whether the the whole concept is, is really worth it. However, I don't think you can really look at relegation in, in isolation, because obviously it's one side of a, of a coin. Um, and the essence of sport is in the prospect of success, and on the other side of that coin, the peril of failure and relegation is the peril. So the threat of relegation is the thing that stimulates improvement for many teams and players. It stimulates ambition, I think, just as much as promotion because nobody wants to fall through that that trap door. That is a a pretty um, powerful stimulus. And if you look at the Premier League, for example, let's take a club like Brighton. You know, they've spent a lot of money on facilities. Yeah, they did come up through the ladder, but uh, up the ladder into the Premier League. But since they've got there... They've spent money on transfers. They've hired Dan Ashworth from the, the FA, which was a very am- ambitious hire as their director of football. He's now off to, to Newcastle, which tells you how highly rated he is. Um, you know, do they do that if their place in the Premier League is guaranteed? I'm, I'm not so sure they do. So a lot of people look at promotion as, as a stimulus. I, I think relegation is, is just as powerful for making clubs wanting to, to, to better themselves and, and do better. Because of the fear element. Exactly. Exactly so. Um, Taylor, I'm, perhaps for, for a relegated team, there's also the benefit that it allows for a shake-up, for lessons to be learned. Let's take Newcastle, for an example. Relegated a few times in the last 10, 15 years. They've learned... Oh, wait, they learned nothing at all. Go on, Taylor. <laughs> I think like Burnley would be a good example of that, though. Burnley get relegated. They reinvest that money into facilities uh, the first time they're promoted, then they use it to kind of strengthen the team when they get promoted again. And now they're, they've stayed in the Premier League since then. And I think you can definitely use that promotion money and the parachute payments that follow if you're relegated to improve like your infrastructure, to get better training facilities, to make yourself more modern so that you appeal to a broader uh, clientele when it comes to your signings. So I think there's definitely the like restructuring aspect can be useful. I mean, teams like the Richmond kickers sort like for lack of a better way of putting it self relegated to 
uh, League One or USL League One because they just couldn't financially compete. And I think there are clubs that would probably take that route to be able to get themselves on sounder financial footing to then be able to compete after the fact. And I think that's definitely one big benefit. I would say some others would be that it makes everyone have to try to compete for the season. There's no slow rebuilds because you've got parity. You kind of have to do everything you can to win or stay competitive that season. And it makes the entire season more interesting. That's an obvious one since teams at the bottom have something to play for. The number one draft pick doesn't really have the same resonance in Major League Soccer as it does in the NBA or the NFL. And I would, I'm would i curious what you all think about this idea. The idea that, like, because I'm not sure if it's a positive or a negative, or even if it's true, but I do think that clubs can sort of define their identity in a promotion relegation system, because there are clubs that are going to be relegation battlers, there's going to be clubs that are sort of comfortably mid-table, and then there are clubs that are challenging for the top four, the top six, whatever it might be. And I think sometimes with relegation, if you define yourself as like, yeah, we're, we don't have a ton of money, we don't have the, a huge fan base, so we are focused on surviving, it lets people buy into that identity of like, we've got to fight for everything, whereas, I don't know, NYCFC, based on where they are and the market they have, probably aren't going to have that same identity, and so it lets teams just differentiate a little bit in my mind. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Joe, perhaps there's also benefits for fans. If you're a Norwich or a Fulham fan, and you're in the if you're Fulham and you're in your Premier League, and you're getting tanked every week, and it's not very fun. You drop down to the Championship, and if you're Fulham, you win every game eight nil every week, and that's a lot more fun for a fan. So there are benefits, uh, tangible benefits to relegation for a fan too, Joe. There are, and I've I've always kind of wondered this. I don't have this experience as as not really ever having been a fan of a team that could be relegated at all. But I wonder what the the trade-off is between, okay, we're in the top flight and we're getting battered every single week, but we might stay up. We might be able to get out of that bottom three versus, hey, we got relegated, but we are, are, we are now going to be the ones doing the battering. And I don't know. I'm sure it depends on the individual as to which of those they prefer. To me, it, it feels like, yeah, you, you want to be as high up in the pyramid as you can be just to give yourself the chance of, of climbing up that top flight table versus being in the second division or being in the third division, being a, a division lower and still winning those games, you, you still know that, okay, we're not doing it at the top level. But I agree, Ryan. I'm sure there are people out there that appreciate uh, being able to batter others. I think that's always fun. Yeah. The the one other thing I'll add here, I, I Taylor, you mentioned it, but I don't think we put enough emphasis on this. Relegation adds drama, right? I think about Major League Soccer, yep. and I love Major League Soccer. I love soccer in the United States. I enjoy watching it grow. There are plenty of flaws with it. You don't get the complacency in other leagues that you do in a lot of American sports leagues. You can't. You cannot afford it. It makes things relegation. And you. And I think this is a case where you actually can separate it from promotion, at least conceptually, because you can just imagine what if there's no one coming up to fill that spot. If, if you're going to say to me at the end of the season, one of these teams is no longer going to be in this league anymore, or two or three of them is no longer going to be in this league anymore, that's incredibly entertaining, right? And, and to the point where I'm, I'm just not sure with all the finances and all the money that's been put into soccer in the United States where that will ever happen. And we don't need to get into a pro-rel discussion for the United States. But, man, it makes things entertaining, right? You cannot take a game off, or if you do, you are going to be punished for it. And that just makes things so much more dramatic. And that's, yeah, I don't know. That's an extremely exciting part about all of this. Yeah, you're entirely right there, Joe. You, MLS has, doesn't, it, it lacks an entire lens in terms of like the, those teams at the bottom of the table aren't given much focus because, you know, what are they realistically playing for? You know, speaking from experience of how British leagues are covered and European leagues, you know, if you go to the, 
you know, they have a, a news roundup on the TV, a news bulletin. They'll go, here's what happened in the title race and here's what happened in the relegation battle. You know, so there's two lenses to the league that you view that league through. And, um, you know, I, I am very much in favour of promotion relegation in MLS. I know that thanks to a certain someone on Twitter, we won't name him. I uh, did. That was... <laughs> <laughs> That idea was stigmatized uh, a cer- a, a, to a certain extent, but I, I think for, for MLS to truly grow into one of the... I mean, that's the big elephant in the room with this question, isn't it? We're talking, when we're talking about relegation and promotion, is MLS. I, I do believe that MLS will have to embrace that idea at some point in the future. Right. Uh, anything more on this question from Brian Taylor? Shall we move on? I think, I think we've covered it. Good, good chat, everybody. Good chat. Well done, everybody. Pats on backs all round. Treats handed out in the next break. Uh, Clay Wagner asks, uh, Thomas Muller has the following titles. Here we go. Ten Bundesligas, two Champions Leagues, six DFB Pokals, a World Cup. He's the number one all-time in Bundesliga assists, top ten in German national team goal score. He goes on and on and on with this list. Uh, Clay's point is, uh, Thomas Muller has never been in the FIFA World Eleven. Is he the most underrated player of his generation? It's a very good question from Clay here, and one which I think I think the answer might be yes from my perspective. And Joe, let, let, let me come to you first here. Is it because is he underrated because Thomas Muller isn't a true striker? He's not a true midfielder, and we don't quite have the metrics. We don't have a box to put him in. Is that the issue with Thomas Muller? I think it's part of it. And I agree, Ryan, with you. And I think I agree with Clay that he might be the most underrated player of this particular generation. I have one other nomination, but Thomas Muller has to be very close to the top of that list, if not at the top. And part of it, Ryan, is I think I think exactly what you're saying. He's not a number nine. He's not a traditional number 10, really. He's not a winger, even though he has done all of those things. He's had a role named for him, right? The Raumdeuter, the space exploiter guy, right? Even then, he still doesn't get talked about at the level that a lot of the other top Bayern players have over the years. Or at least I'm guilty of not talking about him as much as those players. Maybe this is just a me problem. But I think back five, ten years, and when I think about Bayern Munich, I think about Arjen Robin and Frank Ribery. And I think about Bayern Munich now, and I think about Robert Lewandowski, right? I mean, he's never been the guy on Bayern Munich. And maybe that's part of why he's not discussed in the same way as some of those other players. He's not banging in the same number of goals as Lewandowski. He's not producing the same highlight level plays as Arjen Robin. But man, he's been at Bayern for his entire professional career. And he is an elite, even though he's not a number 10, a traditional number 10, he's an elite chance creator. Guys, right now he's 32 years old and he's currently leading the top five leagues in expected assists per 90 minutes. He's that's insane as a 32 year old. He's 16th in the top five leagues in expected goals plus expected assists per 90. And that's according to FB ref. He's not slowing down in his production. He is an incredibly important piece of this Bayern Munich team. And I, I think he deserves all of the praise that we can possibly heap on him. Joe, two things. Firstly, I can't believe he's still only 32 years old. How is that a thing? <laughs> it seems like he's been around forever. And I do enjoy your direct uh, translation of Raumdeuter as Space Explorer Guy. Yeah, he's got his little safari hat on. He's cutting, cutting stuff in the jungle. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Did you have another nomination you mentioned, uh, Joe? Yeah, the other nomination, and, and maybe you guys will tell me I'm way off on this, Kaylor Navas. He certainly came my to, to my, yeah, okay. So I'm not completely off base here. Three straight Champions Leagues with Real Madrid started in goal in every single one of those finals. One La Liga with Real Madrid, one Liga with PSG. 
He's been a dominant force in CONCACAF for a decade. He led Costa Rica to multiple World Cups, made the quarterfinals in 2014. I I just believe, and maybe this is my CONCACAF bias, but I believe that Navas would get more credit and more discussion if he was European or South American or, or from someplace other than Costa Rica, really, which is completely unfair to him. And maybe it's unfair of me to insinuate that or just to go out and say it. But it's he's not. been a phenomenal goalkeeper for so long. And he, he's in that same rough generation as Thomas Muller. And he's another guy that I don't think gets discussed in those European circles as much as he should. Good nomination. Uh, Graham, where did you land on this one? Yeah, I think I think between the two of you, you've you've pretty much covered everything I had in my notes in terms of the fact that you know it's difficult to categorise what he is. Um, I think the I always look at I may have mentioned this before as a way at that I qualify how how good a player is over time in, in terms of looking at the the coaches that they've worked with. So I think I might have mentioned this with Tony Crows, how many coaches he's worked with that have that have really liked him, and I think with Muller as well, you look at that, you know. Pep Guardiola, Ancelotti, Yogi Lowe liked him until all of a sudden he didn't like him. Uh, Hansi Flick, you know, now it's Julian Nagelsmann. There's probably a few that I'm missing off there as well. Uh, Louis van Gaal, I think, gave him his, gave him his debut. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a number of iconic, really influential coaches there that, that have seen Muller for his best qualities. And, and then when, when, uh, Joe was mentioning his list there, I had Keylor Navas, I had Gini Wijnaldum. Uh, uh, maybe a slightly left field candidate I had Wissam Ben Yedder. I can't believe he hasn't had an opportunity at a, a truly sort of elite level club and he's now into his 30s, so maybe he's not going to get that chance. But none of those players in my mind can match up to Thomas Miller. I think he's by far and away the uh, the most underrated of his generation. Yeah, that's good. I, I actually was toying with putting Tony Kroos on that list as well, but he, he is rated, I think it's probably fair to say, probably more so than Thomas Muller. And he actually made the um, FIFA World Eleven in 2016, uh, possibly at Thomas Muller's expense, because he was in it and um, <laughs> Thomas Muller wasn't. Taylor, what do you got? Um, I, I think the answer, one part of my answer is that I think the answer might be different if we were German, because I do wonder if he's more appreciated yeah. in Germany yeah. than he is around the world, because he plays in Germany. He doesn't play in the Premier League. I think if he played in the Premier League and had been transferred there, there would be that much more attention, that much more hype. And that is the other reason why I think he might be slightly undervalued is because he hasn't transferred. He's a one-club man, and I think that means there is less hype around him, that he's been linked with moves, but he's never actually made that move. And I think when you think about players like Paul Scholes or, or Xavi even, they're sort of not valued or not as valued until later on in their careers or even after they've retired. And I think part of that is because they're not constantly moving, so you're not seeing that huge valuation, that huge sum, and then that next transfer with another huge sum. And so to some extent when they make those moves, I feel like you start to get more attention, you get more hype, you get more coverage. But when you stay at a club and you stay at a club in Germany, uh, I think maybe it doesn't get you as much global attention, even if you win everything and are consistently very good. Taylor, building on that, in this YouTube FIFA video game generation, is Thomas Muller sort of, because he hasn't made those big transfers, he is in, dare I say, a slightly less fashionable league as well. Does mm. that contribute as well to him being a little more under the radar. It probably hurts that he plays for Bayern in that if we're talking about a FIFA perspective, unless you want to win the league comfortably, you're not playing for him or not pay, you're not playing with Bayern. But then also he's probably not a player that you would transfer for now that I think of it. Like, like Kylian Mbappe is probably the player that if you're playing with a huge club, you're going to sign right away. He is that sort of difference maker, but you're yeah. never going to play with PSG unless you want to, I don't know, destroy every team in the French league. He's also bad in FIFA, Miller. Sorry, is he really? 
Yeah, like I play FIFA because if you think about like his physical attributes, like That's what true. are his physical attributes? He's not fast. He's not particularly. I mean, he is quite strong, but not in a not in a FIFA sense of sense of the word. Is he good in the air? Is he even technically that good on the ball? <laughs> he's he's kind of uh, difficult to work out, Miller. He's he's not a player that translates well to FIFA as well. So. Maybe that's a contributing factor to his underratedness then, Gwen. He doesn't have any standout things on, on the FIFA graph, if you will. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you... if you The, the best players, the players that are most rated, if we're to say that, you, you can always kind of think of their their trademark move, can't you? You know, Messi is, is dribbling, Ronaldo is... Well, it used to be free kicks, I think, was his, his kind of most eye-catching thing. Now, what would you say? Headers, like leaping high off the ground... Uh, Neymar, I guess, is another really good dribbler. Salah's a really good dribbler. Basically, if you're a good dribbler, you're going to be rated quite highly. Um, look at how Barcelona have just signed Adama Traore uh, from Wolves uh, on that very basis. Although I do think that one is actually going to work out. But Muller doesn't really have any of those qualities. Uh, and I kind of love that about him. I mean, I, I am a massive fan of Thomas Muller. I, per- speaking personally, I do rate him very highly, but I don't know if that's shared he wouldn't be, you know how at school if when you're picking a team from a lineup of your pals and you go, right, I'll have him, I'll have him. I feel like he would be quite near the bottom of the list in world <laughs> football. Be, but he would be, be like he off in another be, field, like playing by himself and then they would yeah. have to call him over and then he'd score like five yeah, like, Hey, Thomas, you're in my team. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hang on, Graham. How good were the players at your school that you would have picked Thomas Muller in your playground side? <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to envisage a scenario in world football where all the players were world class athletes. Not that Thomas Muller was in my school; he probably would have been one of the first picks. I could, I could imagine, imagine he would. And he does have a signature move, by the way. To come back to that, Graham, it is um, galloping like a horse in Lederhosen on the dance floor. Yep, that's true, and yep. that is also a, a, a glorious video yeah. uh, that kicks around social media every so often. I think Barney Roney, the Guardian writer, he. He described Thomas Muller as like a junior doctor on a fun run, which uh, I think sums him up perfectly. And I think I might have repeated that before on this podcast because <laughs> I love it so much. That is a wonderful image and an excellent question from Clay. Thank you very much. We'll take a very quick break to hand out treats and we'll be back with some more shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to listener questions, including this one from Matt Cruz, who says, Why are there so few Serie A teams in southern Italy? Are there any other regions in Europe with very little top-flight soccer? Um, As the person on this podcast who is currently residing in the nation of Italy, I will offer that um, there's a north-south divide 
in Italy. Uh, the wealth and the industry is mainly in the north. Uh, southern Italy, sort of below Rome, below the Lazio region where I am located, is a little poorer, a um, little more traditional in the way of living down there. Um, less interest in governance and fiscal policy, a little bit more corruption. Wow. I'm being very diplomatic, I think, so far, Taylor. I appreciate yeah, you're doing that. great. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, you know, um, that lack lack of um, sort of fiscal policy and governance flows into soccer as well. You tend to find in Europe and elsewhere, the more powerful soccer teams are in more powerful regions. Uh, and in southern Italy, of course, you've got Napoli, which is the biggest team in the south. You've got Palermo down in Sicily as well, off, off of the mainland. But that's the general pattern there. And that may explain, there are certainly a lot of soccer teams in southern Italy. They do love the sport down there, but less powerful ones because of the uh, lesser amount of industry. Did I do that okay, Taylor? The views of Ryan Bailey are his own and do not represent those of the Total <laughs> Soccer Show community. Oh uh, yeah, you did a great job, Ryan. You did a Thanks. great job. Uh, yeah, I think I think you, the North South Divide one is one that I also hit upon. I went the Sopranos route. Furio has the whole rant about how much he hates the North. They put up their nose to us like we peasants since hundreds of years. Spitz, I hate the North. I love Furio, um, and it is that Lewandowski, Taylor Lewandowski. <laughs> Lewandowski with a ponytail, baby. Uh, yeah, I think the North, more industrialized, has more money. It tends to be like the seat of power historically. So I think there is a a divide there. As you said, Ryan, there is a frustration there. But I think if you are an investor looking to put money into a club or you are – or even like if you're an, an immigrant to Italy or an, Italy or an immigrant from the South to the North, you're moving to the North. Exactly that. And I think you tend to support clubs once you move there. I think there's less of a I'm moving to Turin – but rooting for a team in Naples, maybe Naples would be the one exception because of Napoli. But aside from that, there's not a, a ton, I think, of massive clubs coming out of the South that really rival those in the North. I do also think, to maybe get myself into some hot water here, as far as I understand, the South of Italy has more of the Mafia presence, more of the Camorra presence. And so I think that maybe is also part of it. It's harder, again, if you are an investor coming in and you want to buy a club and you want to build up a club... Probably cheaper to find a club in Serie B or a lower tier Serie A team in the south, although I'm not sure how many of those there are. But I think if you're running into a lot of local quote unquote regulations, maybe it's going to make you less likely to uh, get involved. It's it's interesting you mentioned Matthew Taylor. There is like this insidious presence that it has everywhere. This is probably a conversation for another time, but um, you definitely do notice it when you when you, when you come to this place uh, to, to live, certainly. Um, Graham, anything more on Italy, or do you want to expand to other regions of Europe? No, I think I think you guys have, have pretty much covered Italy. I had a lot of notes on social socioeconomic reasons and how the, the recession of the late 2000s, I found some figures on how the, the the northern it Italian economy uh, shrunk by seven percent, and then in the south it was thirteen percent, and that kind of illustrates a bit of that divide that you guys are talking about, and that um, just kind of feeds into the prosperity of, of football clubs, just like it would feed into any other business or organization. In terms of other um, bare spots, if we're going to call it that, in in Europe, in Europe, in terms of club coverage. I thought maybe East Germany was was maybe the yeah. obvious one, yeah. uh, and the reasons for that are, are similar, I guess, to the whole Southern Italy, Northern Italy thing, although obviously you had a literal divide in that country for a long time, um, but that has resulted in 
you know, during football's formative years, a number of those clubs in Eastern Germany were, were kind of left behind a little bit. And now they have such a long way to catch up with their Western peers that you actually only really have two Eastern German clubs in the Bundesliga right now, I think. Hertha Berlin and, and Union Berlin. Berlin. And, and think, Leipzig, yeah. sort of. And, Hertha. and Leipzig, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, I think Hertha historically so, was West. Uh, yes, yes right the West. Union of the Eastern team, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Union and, and RB Leipzig then are, yeah. the, are the kind of the two Eastern clubs in, in the Bundesliga, which obviously is a very small number compared to the Western German, German clubs that you have. Yeah, that was the other one I was going to point to, the East and West of I, pre-unification, obviously um, uh, very different wealth distribution between the two uh, parts of the now unified country, shall we say. And once again, it has a lot to do with money and, and wealth distribution uh, where where powerful teams are. So as you mentioned there, yeah, Union Berlin and RB Leipzig being the two most prominent East German sides. There are sides like Dynamo Dresden and Energie Cottbus, you might remember from a few years ago. Was Mer- Angela Merkel, did she, was she an Energie Cottbus fan? I seem to remember. Anyway, um, yeah, so there, there is a big divide there and there is a, a dearth of popular teams in Eastern Germany. The other um, region I was going to mention was uh, is in the UK as well. I don't know if you appreciate this, Graham, but um, Somerset in the southwest of the UK. Um, mm-hmm. Not a soccer hotspot in the slightest. It's where my wife and her entire family are from. Um, so there's teams like Plymouth, there's Exeter, there's the two Bristol teams, but there's not any team that's ever been in the Premier League. And it's a very rural area. There's fewer people there. Uh, and as someone who has been there many times and my um, in-laws all live there, the, the, the main sport isn't soccer. It's uh, trying to marry your attractive cousin. It's a lot like Shelbyville, actually. Wow. Jeez. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the views expressed by Ryan Bailey do not represent those of the Total Talk Show community. Let's just go ahead Taylor, and throw that one out there. Taylor, you have a really good disclaimer voice. Have you ever thought about doing some disclaimer work? I like it. I mean, if this doesn't work out, I think I got my next career lined it's up. It's the perfect tone. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just wanted to make the Shelbyville comparison, Taylor. That's all. Anything more from you on this one, Taylor? Yeah, I would add, uh, we- weirdly, and I don't know why, but Central France doesn't seem to have a ton going on. I think there are three clubs in Central France, all of them in Ligue 2. Uh, I always get flack for mispronouncing that one, but so be it. And looking at France, Paris aside, and even Paris didn't have the biggest footballing history for a good long while. You mostly have it in like the north, in the northwest, and in the southeast. Uh, and Central France, not a ton going on there. So that would be the other one that sort of stood out to me. Uh, but yeah, if you're looking for good football in France, go to the north, go to the northwest and the southeast where you got Marseille and go hang out on the Mediterranean. Yes, very nice. Um, but it's, it's Ligue 2, Taylor. The way to remember it is Hot Shots Part 2. That was the second one. Ah, yes. That yeah. actually will help me. Thank you. <laughs> you're very welcome. Uh, maybe it's the similar reasons that uh, there's not many teams in the middle of Australia. Like, no one lives there. I think um, they're slightly different, Central France and Central Australia. But yeah, I true. think your point. Yeah, yeah, certainly in terms of climate and um, other things I won't mention on air. Joe, I don't Mad think we've come to you on this one. <laughs> no, I mean, you guys have hit on pretty much everything I had. I had the – it's like Central East Germany doesn't have many top flight teams. The economic and other challenges that you guys already laid out in Italy between the North and the South. And, and I was thinking about France as well, though I didn't read much into that. You guys nailed it. Thank you very much, Joseph. Uh, thank you for the question, Matt. Uh, here's one from Christopher Decker, a USMNT question, an uncomfortable hypothetical from Christopher, he says. Let's say the United States completely eschews its moral compass. Um, I feel like that's been done. And annexes a Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's basically describing the, the Monroe Doctrine and the Roosevelt Corollary. Like, this 
actually sort of happened for a while. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, to complete the sentence, say yeah. the United States completely issues its moral compass and annexes a Caribbean zone CONCACAF nation for the sole purpose of fortifying our national team. Which lucky island, uh, eagles <laughs> and freedom fries in exchange for getting America out of the group stage? Uh, Joseph, what do you think? Is this, is this uh, Panama? Is this a Jamaica? Who are you going to try and swipe here for this uncomfortable hypothetical? So if we're being literal here with the question and only looking at the Caribbean zone, and there are different zones of CONCACAF, there's the North American, uh, I think that's right, there's the North American zone, which I believe just has Mexico, the US and Canada, there's the Central American zone, and then there's the Caribbean zone. The only team that I think it can be for the USMNT right now is Jamaica. It has to be Jamaica. There's not that many other teams in that part of the world that I think could really contribute to the US. And with Jamaica, you get Mikel Antonio, first and foremost, who probably is the USMNT's starting number nine if he was able to play for the U.S. You get Leon Bailey, who would certainly play. I don't know if he would start, but he would be in contention to start. Andre Blake would make a U.S. World Cup roster. I don't know that Baralter would start him over Zach Steffen, given that I think Blake and Turner are pretty similar players in that they're they're both defined shot stoppers. They're defensive goalkeepers. And Steffen's whole thing is that he's supposed to be better with his feet. But Andre Blake would still make a roster. And then Kamar Lawrence, I think, is another player who would make a U.S. roster and maybe even start at left back for the United States men's national team. There's maybe one or two other players. Bobby Reed, you might snag a center back somewhere. You might get one other attacking player. But really, I think even with those four guys, it makes this uncomfortable hypothetical. Um, This is the answer, in my opinion. I don't know that there's any other Caribbean nation you can justify the U.S. annexing outside of Jamaica for this particular yeah. reason. Yeah, Joe, I'm, I'm with you. Looking at the Caribbean Football Union, like you could look at Trinidad, you could look at Haiti, but I think when it comes to what the U.S. needs, they need a number nine for sure. You hit that with Mikel Antonio. They need left-back depth. You hit that with Kamar Lawrence. I agree with you on Leon Bailey. I hadn't thought about Andre Blake. That's a great shout. Graham, my one question for you, does Kamar Roof make the U.S. M&T better? Is he a player that fits into the squad, or is he on the kind of periphery of that 23-man roster? At the moment on the periphery, he's he's kind of struggling for game time a little bit at Rangers, but that is actually a little bit surprising to me. I thought he was going to be a runaway hit at Rangers. So potentially, if he if he finds like a club that's maybe a better fit for him, I think, yeah, he definitely has the quality to, to be in that roster. Joe, I've got a I've got something for you to do here. Um, I'm going to say a sentence, and I need you to say the word Jamaica as soon as I say it. Are you ready? Okay. My wife tried to annex a Caribbean island. Jamaica. No, she wanted to. Oh, my. I was coerced into that, listener. <laughs> I, have no, I have no part of that. Just, oh, I don't even have words to describe that joke, Ryan. Um, You're welcome. That's... Good, good work, good job. Was, you did it. Do you feel that good? Was even are you ha- worse are you than happy? the Somerset pun. <laughs> I'm on fire today. I am on fire today. Um, so yeah, are we are we universally agreed? It's Jamaica. Then is there any other possible answer here, Joe? If I if we expand the question a little broader and out, and look outside of the Caribbean and an inch towards that Central American zone. We're not going to be able to annex Canada or Mexico, despite how useful that would be. There's plenty of players from each of those teams. So unambitious. I know, right? Okay, maybe we should. Maybe I should be thinking bigger, Graham. I'm sorry. But if we rule out those two teams... They're doing it for a World Cup. They they are very much powerhouses. Yeah, you're right. Let's get Jonathan (laughs) David up in here. We could have done that, but uh, anyway, setting that aside, Honduras is a team that comes to mind for me. I know the U.S. just absolutely played them off of a ice rink uh, less than a week ago or about a week ago now. 
But I think about Albert Elise and Romel Kyoto, and those players could help the United States right now. Kyoto, I think, could play as a lone nine, although he's usually more comfortable playing up top with someone else or, or you know, in, even in a front three a little bit wider. But him and Elise are incredible players, especially Elise. If you could get him playing direct up top, I think he would there's a really good chance he would start on one wing. And I think there's even a chance he could start as a nine for the U.S. if Baralter can get him working in that, in that, in that system. I think Honduras is the other team that maybe the U.S. could get their hands on some of those players and really use them. But as we, as we all know, none of this is going to happen. And to actually answer Christopher's question, the answer is Jamaica. Joe, you just blew my mind. I did not know that Jonathan David was born in Brooklyn. Yeah, born that in Brooklyn. Yep. is fascinating. Yeah, moved to Haiti when he was three months old. Then they moved to Canada. Declined the call-up from Tab Ramos. There we go. So at least they tried. At least they tried. Wow. Uh, Graham, anything else on this question before we move on? Not really. It's it's Jamaica, <laughs> I think, quite, quite clearly. Just purely for how much uh, recording time we would save and not having to discuss who's playing at number nine for the oh USMNT, my. you know. Yeah. What does Zardes actually do? Worrying about Pepe actually going to be informed for the World Cup? Who told Jordan Morris he's invited? Yeah, we would save a lot of time if it was just Michael Antonio. <laughs> the issue that legitimately, I, this is how sick I am. As soon as I thought about Jamaica, okay, I settled on that as being the answer. And Michael Antonio was the first player I wrote down. I had he would start as the U.S. Men, the U.S. Men's National Team's number nine. But then I added a column that says most likely because I, he doesn't really have the defensive work rate, I think, to press in the way that Baralter wants. And I just think Mikel Antonio would add a whole nother layer uh, to the onion that is USMNT number nine discourse. So, Graham, I think it, it's nice of you to think that we would have to, we would be able to stop talking about those things, but I'm afraid that we would continue to talk about them for <laughs> yeah. far too long. Yeah. A way would still be found. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always uh, you'll, send me, you'll send me regular reminder that uh, AFC Wimbledon didn't give Mikel Antonio a contract. They didn't think he was good enough. He is a Premier League star now, and we're going to get relegated from League One. How things work out wonderfully. Now, listener, um, at this point, I need to tell you how the sausage is made and how we select our listener questions, or m- m- more looking into the process. Looking at the listener questions we received, and if you want to send us one, head to the totalsoccershow.com website and submit one, please do. But I would say a good percentage, gents, of the questions we get are aimed at Graham. He is a source of fascination for everybody. <laughs> um, so I propose, gents, that we go into bonus Graham time right now with a couple of Graham oh, no. specific BGT. questions. BGT. BGT. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd are calling for bonus Graham time, Graham. Do you accept the charges? Uh, I mean, I guess. I mean, my, <laughs> not even... Not even my my wife is this interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me! Let's go into bonus ground time then. Um, Christopher's back. Christopher Decker is back with this one um, pertaining to your OnlyFans account, Graham. What uh-huh. shirt sponsor aesthetically <laughs> ruins the kit? Uh, he says, for example, the perfectly cromulent 2021 Red Man United jersey becoming the sort of free T-shirts handed out at a car dealership promotion and subsequently assuming the post as yard work attire. Ooh, quite an assessment there. He's definitely in big in that sentence with the use of prominent, though, so well done there. Graham, I'll get the ball rolling with sponsors that are like the really large Asian gambling logos. Uh-huh. I think the worst culprit might be Wolves at the moment, but um, I'll, I'll hand the ball to you. Yeah, Wolves had a, have a bad one. Southampton have had bad ones in, in the past along those similar lines. I think anything that takes away from the design of the shirt in general or sticks out from the overall design of the shirt is, is, is a bad sponsor. So I think if you look at the Philadelphia Union shirts, uh, how they looked at first with Bimbo as, as, as the sponsor, that was a bad one because 
well, because that word means something different in, in the UK. But uh, that was a bad one because their their logo was kind of blue and red and it, it wasn't matched at all to the to the union's colours of kind of a darker blue and gold. That has actually got a lot better recently. That logo is now gold to match the union's colours. So that makes a massive difference. But yeah, anything that just looks like it's been stuck on and has is a bit of an afterthought. I think Manchester United's, the, the Chevy logo that they had was one of the worst. It was yeah. absolutely giant. And it was... Uh, this sort of gold uh, kind of imitation, like it tried, it tried to look like the what you would actually get in a car, but obviously it's two D, so it was terrible. It looked absolutely terrible. But I think there is there is a very thin line between what what makes a good sponsor and what makes a bad sponsor, because I think anything too generic and bland is also bad. But then you also you also don't want anything too noteworthy. But even then, there are some exceptions. I think of Fulham when they had Pizza Hut on their shirts, for example. Nice. Everything in the book says that shouldn't have worked, yet it was a classic. Same with Wolves. They had Doritos as a sponsor for a while. That one shouldn't have worked, but was good. And then Sheffield Wednesday, they had... I never know how to pronounce pronounce this, but Chopper Chops. You know the lollies, Ryan? Chopper Chops. Chopper Chops lollies, yeah. yeah. They had that as a sponsor, which is kind of a yellow and red sponsor against blue and white stripes. Shouldn't have worked, but it, I still quite like that. So there's no there's no one rule for all. To, to go nerdy on the Man United Chevrolet deal, and I, by the way, we should hope that none of these companies are going to sponsor the podcast <laughs> anytime soon. But um, no, to go nerdy on it, the Chevrolet logo is based on the Swiss flag. That is a fact. Um, so they could have used red and white. They, it was right there, Graham. It was right there. They could have, and that would that would have looked a lot better. Yeah. I think the new the new Manchester United sponsor isn't a terribly notable uh, logo that they have, but because it's white, it's instantly better than that Chevy logo yeah. that they had for a number of years. And is it me, or have shirt sponsor logos gotten bigger and higher on the shirt in recent years? They have, but... Now, Ryan. <laughs> I know, right? I'm... <laughs> they... Everyone needs to get off my lawn. Graham, answer the question. <laughs> Yeah, old man shouts at cloud. Um, they have got bigger, certainly, but I, I also think there's a there's a there's a delicate balance to the placement of where a sponsor should go. So too high looks too funny, but equally too low looks really weird. There's a there's a Airdrie have a sponsor. Their sponsor is uh, a company called Hole Masters, uh, and sorry, they have their sponsor. Yep, that that's true. And uh, their sponsor is kind of over the stomach, over the belly, rather than like over the what would you say, like lower chest, like the ribs is where I think a sponsor should go. And I always think the Airdrie shirts look really weird. Hole masters. Yep. I think they're a drilling company. Move it on. Move it Let's on. Let's move it. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, Joe, do you want some more BGT? One more for you? Oh, bring it. Bring it, Let's Ryan. Do it. All right. Matt Jarrett, uh, more Graham time here. Uh, Graham, I am a traveling American, traveling to Scotland with my 10-year-old soccer-loving son in June, and I'm hoping to attend the aforementioned Scotland versus Ukraine. No, it's not the aforementioned. This is the Nations League match. Yeah, this is the Nations League one. Another Ukrainian-Scotland game. Uh, Any Mm -hmm. recommendations, asked Matt, for the experience besides not eating a burger? Sigh to that one. (laughs) Um, I'll start off. um, I mean, the two... Best recommendations I can make to Matt would be to either just take a train south to London or to cancel ah, the trip. I knew this was coming. But um, what would you say, Graham? So the the first thing to say is that match, that Scotland Ukraine game, could have quite the atmosphere of Scotland qualify for the for the World Cup in March. So I think um, Scotland have a game against Armenia before that game. Um, so those two games are pretty close together. It could be a bit of a party atmosphere, or it could be a funeral atmosphere. One of, one of the two. Um, so the second thing, Hamden. 
I think maybe doesn't show Scotland Scottish football in its best light. It's it's a historic ground and everything, and I would recommend the Scottish Football Museum that's there. That's worth a visit during the day. There's all sorts of of things there, and there's sort of interactive uh, ex- exhibits, which kind of it might be interesting for uh, for your son there to have a go on those. Um, but in terms of the general experience, I think Merchant City Square is always a good place to go before a big match in in Glasgow. It's sort of a covered plaza with with bars and big screens and so on and, and football fans go there before games you'll get songs and chanting and you might even get some visiting fans if there are any Ukrainians in town in, in June that's probably where they will they'll be they'll be in March, Merchant City Square I think if you're looking for a more cultured tipple the pot still is a famous whiskey bar in Glasgow I think they have over 200 uh, whiskies there that's quite a famous bar food wise Try and hit. I'm going to be trying to be quick here. Rattle through a few things. Food wise, try and hit up Mother India's Cafe. It's a famous Indian restaurant. It wins all sorts of awards. Anthony Bourdain was a fan. He he visits it in parts unknown. Glasgow's kind of known for its Indian food, so that 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 for my money is the best one in the city. And then I have to give a recommendation for the best place for a munchie box in the town. Of course, I do. <laughs> you have to, Grant. That, yeah. You you'll find that at Magic Grill on Dumbarton Roads, and conveniently, and this is entirely true, <laughs> there is a funeral parlour next door to the Magic <laughs> uh, to the Magic Grill on Dumbarton Road. Yeah. So I think if you tick off football, alcohol, and food that will clog your arteries, I think you've pretty much had the full Glasgow experience. This all sounds wonderful for a ten-year-old, Graham. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he can. Come along and have the deep fried Mars bar in the munchie box. And that's, that does make me think, when I think of Scotland and things to do, if I'm going to try and be nice about Scotland for a second, it does strike me as like an over 18s kind of place because you think of, you know, um, drinking, uh, <laughs> hard <laughs> drugs. Violence. What else do you do up in Scotland? Yeah, and violence. Violence, yeah. right. Um, I guess so. I mean, the, as I say, the, the, the Scottish Football Museum, there are, that is genuinely quite, that would be quite interesting. There's kind of a, I think like a crossbar challenge, sort of interactive crossbar challenge thing there. And that, that would be quite interesting if you were a picture, picture myself when I was a, a soccer loving 10 year old, I, I would have really liked that. Excellent stuff. Taylor, have you ever been to Scotland? I have not. I would like to. Why? <laughs> wow. For wow, alcohol. Ryan. So kind of you. So kind that of you are to Graham. Are you guys, are, Graham, are you just going to punch Ryan the first time y'all meet? Uh, Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> just a quick little sucker punch, just to let him know. I like that idea. Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to reach over to Italy from where I am now. I'm sure I can reach. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's basically a sign of affection, though, for Scots, isn't it, Graham? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah, punch, and you should hear what we call our friends. I can't I can't even begin to think about repeating it on a on a podcast. Yeah, Matt, enjoy your trip to Scotland with your ten year old. In that, um, <laughs> with with that note, I think that just about wraps up listener questions for another wonderful, wonderful show. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much, good sir. Right back at you, my friend. Joe Lowry, keep on trucking in Arizona, bud. Ah, uh, you too. And Graham, say hello to Matt when he comes in June, okay? <laughs> I will do. Thanks, Ryan. Listener, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.